At LA Fitness, there's no end to what you can try with your three-day free pass. Sign up today at startlafitness.com. From cycling to swimming, running to rowing, battle ropes to box jumps, and the perks don't stop there. When you join LA Fitness, it opens the door to premium amenities like Olympic lifting platforms, basketball courts, pools, and more. Stop into one of our hundreds of locations. Grab your free three-day pass at startlafitness.com. That's startlafitness.com. Amenities vary by location. Certain amenities may be available for an additional fee. Free three-day pass is redeemable by non-members only. Other restrictions apply. Imagine the perfect day trip, down the road, off the highway, not too far from home, and close to perfect. A place where farm-fresh goods come from local folks, where you can explore the beautiful side of the majestic Trinity River, where charming, locally-owned shops are filled with one-of-a-kind finds and tasty food, where you discover miles of parks perfect for nurturing your natural side. Discover these and other experiences in Capel, not too far at all, and close to perfect. Click the banner to learn more. I know now what I want to say in my intro for my podcast. I'm going to start with a warning to other creatives. Create like it's your last podcast, last graphic, last painting, last blog post. There's so many forces out there that want us to be bland, and that is not possible with this fro. I have too many thoughts about celebrating us, reading what I want to read, pointing out donkeys, what links us together and shouldn't tear us apart. I also give you bonus content through Ten Fro's Bar on my Patreon and if you become a melanated nerd. I also will share content about getting the real tea on reality TV. Join me in this episode of Ten Fro is Reading for the Wild Ride. And thank you for listening. place on earth. I'm camping out at the Sportsman RV Park. It's beautiful here, waterside, but the traffic on the bridge is crazy. I'm going to and for Ratford, Virginia. It's not too far from 81, so it's very convenient. It's just loud, and I'm hoping it doesn't carry over into the background of the podcast. But anyways, I wanted to take the time to basically just uh, keep let my list, letting my listening audience know about what my push is. I'm well on my way still trying to push um, diligently and strongly to 200,000 downloads, getting new listeners. I want to be... 1 million episodes, um, hopefully within the next several months. Um, and it's, it's a wild ride. And throughout my journey, I'm actually, uh, making connections with other podcasters and other authors and creatives. And we're just going on this journey together. Um, hopefully the end will be a spot, um, where I get a great sponsor and I can relax and just create great content, continuing to educate 
and uplift everyone that listens to my podcast. Because if you can't create with that in mind, what is the point, right? It's more than just going viral, although that would be nice. But why not go viral for something positive? Life is all about connection. And it was one connection that led me to my next guest, Noelle Ojo. She's just one of those people that just blows you away the more you speak with her. She's actually a um, New York University School of Law graduate um, with her JD. Um, She lives in the Washington, D.C. area, um, but she's a foreign service officer through USAID. She has done several stints on the continent of Africa, and more importantly, her experience living in those five of the 56 different countries on that vast continent. She able she was able to create a collective experience so she can confidently and comfortably uh, advise other people like myself um, to move to the motherland to experience freedom, liberation, and cultural experience. And my discussion with her, and this is only part and partial of a vast discussion of Blacksit and other um, issues surrounding reverse immigration, Um, but I think you'll enjoy it and you'll be uh, just blessed by this discussion. And here it is with Noelle Ojo. So welcome. Um, I am. I have the pleasure to um, have on my show today, Noel Ojo. Um, did I pronounce your last name correctly, or did I hack it? Well, it's Ojo. It's Ojo. the hard, the hard J. It's a hard Nigerian J. last name. My husband is Nigerian. Oh, awesome. Um, can you give us a little bit of your background and where are you on the continent, or where if you're on the continent at all at this time? Sure. So uh, thank you so much for having me, Felicia. I'm really excited to be here and and to chat about this whole phenomenon of Blacksit. My name is Noelle Ojo, and I was born Noelle Wright Young, originally from Brooklyn, New York, and then moved to the D.C. metro area. So that's really home for me right now. And um, let's see. So I'm a Florida A&M Rattler, proud family graduate. Yeah. And because um, I know I, I know we have that Florida connection, and um, I knew always that I wanted to go to law school, and so I went to law school um, after graduating from FAM. Um, went to NYU School of Law. They have a really robust um, public interest like mm-hmm. program, and so I was allowed to go overseas for my first summer, and I got a chance to go to Nairobi, Kenya. That's my first time abroad. First time having getting a passport. First time going overseas, and it changed me. I just enjoyed being abroad. I enjoyed uh, the continent in particular and just the work. And while I was over there, I actually met another African-American woman who was working there. I think she was working for the League of Women Voters at the time. And that was her work. She was like, I go overseas, I do research, I do monitoring and evaluation. I was like, wow, people do this for a living. So I thought that was cool. And so when I came back, I learned at that point, I started learning about the Foreign Service and the State Department. So my last year of law school, I took the Foreign Service exam. Um, 10 days after 9-11 in New York City. Wow. Wow. 
that was interesting. Yeah, that was interesting. And um, and got basically went through the motions, got you know passed, and um, was accepted in April. I graduated in May. I took the bar in July, and then because I'm barred in the state of Maryland, but though I never practiced, and then I joined the State Department in November of twenty of two thousand two. And by March, I was in Nigeria for my first assignment. So I served in Nigeria, Lagos, had a ball. My second assignment was to Yaoundé, Cameroon, uh, where we met um, our like my good friend, your good friend, Ka Wala. And then um, came back to Nigeria, actually left the State Department. I came back to Washington and then got a job opportunity based on a lot of the work that I was doing when I was there um, and the contacts that I made and left the State Department and actually worked private sector in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Worked for a Nigerian private equity firm, uh, lived, you know, not attached to the embassy at all. So I was in Nigeria in a, you know, private Nigerian citizen. boss, yeah, colleagues. I didn't know anybody at the embassy actually or at the consulate when I was there at that time. So um, then met and married my husband when I was there at that period. But then at, at a certain point, we moved back to the States. And while I was in the States, worked the State Department again, did a little bit of moving around. And then we decided we wanted to go back into the foreign service. But this time I joined USAID to do development work as a democracy and governance officer. Mm -hmm. And so back in 2017, I moved to Dakar, Senegal. I did four years in Dakar. And then I did one year in Ghana. And I actually moved back from Ghana about a year ago. I'm here in Washington, assigned here in Washington. And I do, uh, um, so I wasn't, you know, when I'm overseas with aid, I'm a democracy and governance officer, rule of law, human rights, elections, et cetera. Here in Washington now, I'm doing diversity, equity, inclusion work, DEIA, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility work. So I work with a lot of uh, minority serving institutions, HBCUs, Hispanic serving institutions, et cetera, and partnerships around that. So um, that's the story. And I think um, in terms of my career, which has led me, I think, to be able to have some insight in why I wrote the book. So the book is The Blacks That Affect the African-American's Guide to uh, Relocating to Africa. And so in my 20 years off and on of living and working, particularly on the continent, I met a lot of Black Americans uh, who were there for a variety of reasons. Um, they could be there working, you know, some were with the embassy, most were not. Uh, most of the African-Americans I met were they were there either just privately, private sector, uh, they were married to, people from the continent or from people from that particular country. They were teachers. There's a huge international school teaching community uh, that has a lot of uh, particularly African-American women. Um, so they could be there for a number of reasons. And you, I would meet people who would thrive. They would get there. They're doing well. They're, you know, they're connecting. They're relating. They're doing great. And then you would meet other people who just crashed and burned. Six months, a year, they're done. Um, and then they're mad, they're angry. And that's <laughs> what I want to talk to you about, that crashing and burning. Um, mm-hmm. Did you see that more in um, the people that came there with a purpose, like they came there, they were the teachers, they came in there with private equity, or it it just was ubiquitous to everybody that was there. There's some people that go there because their jobs take them there, like right. initially how you went there. Um, however, some people for purpose, they were just like whatever country in particular at that time, um, especially the 2016, 2017, a lot of people just gave, threw up the deuces and were out and it had to do with jobs. They were just like, I'm out. What 
did you see a, a wide variety or was it just one uh, group yeah. that had the disillusionment, you think? That's an excellent question. Never thought about it like that, but I think I do have an answer for that. I think, so there's two ways that you can crash and burn, right? So there's some that, yes, the people who came and were just like, I'm out, chuck the deuces, just here's my suitcase. And that's another reason why I wrote the book because it's like, you have to have your paperwork together. <laughs> you just show what up. What is your country. plan? <laughs> yeah, you got What is your plan, right? Like simple things like, where am I going to live? Um, can I open a bank account? Can I get a, can I get a, um, a phone? Because a lot of these countries require that you have a bank account or some type of residency permit. You can't, uh, uh, Americans in general, like the, the concept of having to like get permission to be somewhere is new for us because- right. You don't need visas to go to a lot of places. Um, the whole concept of, I didn't know what a visa was until right. I joined the State Department. Like seriously, you know, like I didn't. Um, I know what a visa was until I started watching 90 Day Fiance, so. Right, <laughs> exactly. And like length of time you can be in a place for a certain, if you're not exactly. a citizen, then right. everybody, that I don't, concept. it's not realistic. It's not realistic here, I think. Exactly, because we just, it's not a part of our everyday unless you know people that are from a, a, other places and deal with it. Um, you also don't know how valuable they are. You don't know how, what, what people will do to get it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so that sometimes we can be very vulnerable in that way um, because we don't understand the power of just being an American citizen. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a value in that. Um, so the people who came and just kind of like, I'm out, I'm, I'm gonna figure it out. Uh, because I think sometimes there's a misconception that, well, it's cheaper over here and um, I'll figure something out. I can make my way. You cannot win. It's not necessarily cheaper. No, I mean, especially if you're gonna live in the major cities, which is what we would tend to do. I'm going to Nairobi, I'm going to Lagos, I'm going to uh, Johannesburg, I'm going to Dakar. These places, I cry, it's not cheap to live the way that you would probably want to live, right? (laughs) Um, And I'm not even necessarily the most expensive neighborhood, but even like a nice, professional class, middle-class neighborhood that has running, you know, water and power and, you know, those things cost money. And so you might be paying the same amount that you would be paying in the States or, because, you know, you'll see people, I saved $10,000, I'm moving to Africa. That's going in two months. Mm-hmm. And what people don't also realize is like, in a lot of these countries, they want that rent year up front. That there's no month. And, that, and nobody tells anybody that. Right. And then you get there and they're like, okay, we'll take that 10,000. Yeah. Right. Right now. And so you're like, or you haven't thought about how you're going to generate income when you're there. Correct. Um, you know, or you're like, I'll, I'll get a remote job. Okay. You could, but you need to get that sorted before you leave because you have now restrictions on their companies in the States that are like, no, you need to, they have their own rules and regulations about people right. working abroad. And, you know, like the idea of like, you have to get your ducks in a row. You have to cross your T's and dot your I's. Um, you don't understand, or this like, oh, I'm going to start a business. Okay. Some countries you can go and you can start a business and you can be a hundred percent owner. There's other countries where they're like, but any business have to, has to be 51% from that other, from that country. Okay. So who are you partnering with? Mm-hmm. Or, then, or somebody's going to take your business or you won't be able to get it to begin with, you know? And, and it varies. Like it's 54 countries on a continent. There's about 10 or 15 that we tend to go to and, and kind of set up shop. You've got to learn the rules and regulations of the place you want to call home. Um, the idea of I'm going to buy land and build. Ghana is like the hot cake right now. Everybody want to go to Ghana. 
they have some of the most challenging uh, land right laws, even amongst themselves. Like, so you have a coded law and then you have tribal law. People, you can have the best and most beautiful contract. This is my thing. It's all good. And somebody's grandparent from can come back and have a claim and you'll be tied up in litigation for forever. And to be honest, to foreigners, they sometimes don't necessarily sell you the land. They give you like a hundred year lease. So it's not something you may even necessarily be able to pass on to your children. These are the things you need to understand before you kind of go in blindly uh, to what's happening. Um, And so that's the thing to answer your question. Some crashed and burned because it's a lot of times it had to do with um, the administration of, of living in these places. Exactly. And, and I think this is, that's a great lead in and I have a a follow-up. One of my most favorite uh, podcast hosts, besides yourself, um, is (laughs) um, (laughs) Demetri L. Lucas. uh, Yes. uh, Ratchet and Respectable. And she um, has, she basically has been for, was, had talked about her blacksing and how she, but it took her about a little over a year to get her ducks in a row. Um, mm-hmm. The planning, getting her things from LA, just the stuff, crease, everything. Moving back and getting her things and storing them in her parents' basement. Right. The, the admin, you bring up the administrative paperwork. Not only did she have to, every, she had a passport because she's well-traveled. The visa process, how she couldn't stay there for like certain periods of time, how um, setting up um, accounts and her phone, and then the issue with power because of the aging power system. And that didn't become apparent till she went to South Africa. Mm-hmm. But there were so many other things. Then down to the things where, where do I get my lashes done? Where do I get my brace? That's just once she got on the ground, she was able to figure that out. But the right. process took her over a year from an administrative standpoint to get through all the governmental red tape to basically get there. And that has to play in to when you are, if you're truly thinking about decamping or going back to Africa and setting and what the expectations are. And I think you did, I thought your chapter itself was brilliant in the fact about setting um, expectations. And then that's when I realized that I think I'm a little lazy right now to do blacks. It takes too much work. I'm girl. I'm just, <laughs> and I have no patience and it would drive, just drive me crazy. So I can't imagine when I was started seriously thinking about it during the 2020 election. Right. And I can't imagine you said you went back to the state, the for not the State Department or the Foreign Service. Yeah, with USAID, but the Foreign Service, yeah. Right. In Mm -hmm. 2017, I can't imagine being working even in that uh, during the administration during that period, because I was here. I was still in Tennessee, but I felt the election was it was hard on me for a lot of reasons, because Mm -hmm. at that point I started feeling kind of very unsafe here. Mm Um, I had was was going back and forth. The pandemic was on. I used to drive back and forth until I sold my properties in North Carolina and mm-hmm. here. But I had this increasing feeling of not feeling safe. Um, and I didn't want to hedge my bets. So I had put two tickets on hold just in case I had to get the hell out. You know, I made sure I had That's credit true. line was open and one way ticket somewhere because if 
that electoral count, I was watching it like I was watching Super Bowl. If that count was not correct, I had a, I was getting out. I was out, I was gone. But the idea of what was waiting for me on the other side, I did not think that out because there is a plan to it. And could you basically reiterate what Black Sick, because there's different definitions. Some people go to the continent. There are other people that go um, to the Caribbean because I had Ghana and I also had one to Barbados. I was going to hang out with Rihanna and them if I- That's a lovely place too. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I was going to go there, um, but there are reasons. It's the exodus of people um, and have what certain type of profiles. What people decamp. I knew my reason because I was running a little scared, but I hadn't thought it out. And I think I would have crashed and burned. I I probably would have figured it out, but I would have been really frustrated. But right. what are some of the other reasons why people also leave from an African-American standpoint? Okay, good question. So I think, so first that like that term Blacksit is a play on the word of Brexit, which is when the British, you know, exited uh, the European Union. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so then it got adapted. It's not my term, you know, it's, um, it's out there. It belongs mm-hmm. kind of to everyone. But I think it's the, it's the concept of, we'll speak specifically about Black Americans, right? But, but it also can, we're seeing it apply to Black Europeans or mm-hmm. like, you know, you might have, you know, Black Brits that either have African roots or Caribbean roots um, who are also kind of returning home. They return home in a different way because they actually, a lot of them have a, a nation state to return to in a way that's different from Black Americans where we don't necessarily have a particular home nation that we're returning to. We just want to come back to the continent. A lot of us are choosing West Africa because we know a lot of our roots are, are there. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think um, really it started after Trayvon Martin's mm-hmm. death and the unjust way in which that was that happened. And it's just like, that was like almost like our second, as a nation, like a second um, wave, right? Or, or the second phase of like the civil rights movement, um, except that there really has been no movement. Right, it's just more and more cases. Even just today, I saw like some woman in Ocala, Florida. I think went to go get an iPad, was shot dead um, at the front door. It doesn't end, and so people are. And then definitely after George Floyd, yes. it was like so after the election, because yep. I joined Aid in 2016, so I was already working, and I remember the day. I'm in the D.C. area at the time. You could hear a pin drop on that metro the next morning. Oh my God, and people in tears at the office, you know, like grown men crying, you know, Um, because it was like, and I guess, you know, I'm in a blue state, you know, in the deep, and it just was mind-blowing for a lot of us. But like you said, that was the trigger for a lot of people to be like, there's got to be another way. I can't be here. And then we saw the reaction of leadership at the time after George Floyd's murder. And so people are like, there's got to be another way. This is not the only way and place to live. Um, and so I think people started exploring and, and mass exodus, like you saw a number of people that just said, I can't do this anymore. And then they left um, where they could. Um, and so I think that's what that phenomenon is. Um, and we'll continue to see it. I think the more we, because I, but I think it's a, it's a good thing in that, you know, we're indoctrinated with um, American exceptionalism, right? Like we're the best thing ever. Nothing's better than us. And I think, 
as the world is getting more global and we're seeing, we are naked on the stage. I think uh, the world looks at the United States and they're like, are y'all serious? Like that's and they and recently with the NAACP giving that tribal advisory for Florida, you know, it and I was concerned. My nephew went to Miami, the Miami that I remember and used to go to back. Like I haven't been to Miami since 2016. Right. I just realized that's when dude, I call him Chump. Chump right. was elected, but it was before the election. I went down there for the food and wine festival. I had a mm -hmm. ball. Um, mm -hmm. but it wasn't that is not the same Miami as I feel feared that there is now. And right. I didn't want to put my own fears and anxiety. I was like, just keep your head on swivel. And you got to right. basically give them the whole talk about walking while black, you know, um, and that- And how we wait till the last minute to call up, like police officer is the last, the yeah, last that's, phone call I'm it should be like because... a death, You know, that's what people, I would love to go, to a place where I didn't think that calling the cops was a death sentence. And I still, even at my age and crankiness, um, I still, even when I'm in my, in my truck, that's a whole different conversation. I have right, a big right. F-150, it's a big Bubba truck. Oh, nice. But if I have a pool <laughs> or I see the lights, I get real anxious and I put my yes. hand at the yeah. tenant because I know I know the position and I've had been here for a long because I know I'm not safe I mean Brianna at that same time it was like back to back it was George Floyd it was Brianna I, right. I can't imagine being shot dead in my own bed in my house if I'm paying the mortgage and it's somehow it's your fault right me. it's and your it's fault and 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 he now the dude the attorney general is running for election he's the most conservative fascist sounding mug Cameron that I've ever heard. And he looks kind of like um, one of my relatives, but I just, the stuff that comes out of his mouth is crazy. So, but, in, but you said something in your book. It says you are moving to a place where people may look like you, but may not necessarily behave like you. You are arriving at a place where historically you may have ties and connections. However, in the most recent past, there may be more disconnection than togetherness. And I think that's the expectation. We want, we think of this color purple welcoming, but it's not always that way. And okay. that's one of the disappointments where people feel, oh, I, I'm being rejected, all this mess. I'm leaving behind all this racist mess here in the United States. Right. Where is my color purple? Where is, where's the knacky daddy? Exactly. I'm seeing that. And they're exactly. really just, sad and I think if I hadn't read that I would have been like I would have thought the same thing but no it wouldn't have been it's not really rejection I gotta put no, it in yeah yeah you have to put it in right because I think in the United States everything is racialized we exactly. are gonna vibe because we're black and we will have a similar experience right nine times like when you're talking about driving and putting them like and I'm like yeah you're because I do the same I, we understand each other because our experiences are going to be the same in this context. When you go overseas, everybody's black, right? Like, so in, if I'm in Ghana, if I'm in Senegal, what's going to differentiate you or make you tied to another person is not the color. And no. we can't, so when we see another, like, oh, that's brother, sister. And it's like, and they're like, okay, nice to meet you. Who are you? Because they'll be polite because a lot of the cultures are just polite like more polite than I mean maybe down south people are friendly in that kind of way like that would be more similar but in general they're not they don't have that same generally speaking the same like 
need to connect based on race um, or based on how we look, because that's not, so you'll see, that's interesting too, like when we go overseas, class is a big differentiator, right? right? So it's hard for us to like get house helps and have drivers and maids and and where we probably get like really close to them because in our society, we don't differentiate in general about like class. Like, it's like, look, you, you put your pants on the same way I put my pants on, whether you the CEO right. or, you, or you sweeping the floor. And so we kind of engage with each other that way in a lot of other countries, not just African countries, it's a class thing. And if like, if your mama was a maid and your daddy was a driver and a, and a house and a cook nine times out of 10, that's just about to be what you want to be because there's not even uh, opportunities. So the society is not set up for people to even get out of that, right? And so people look at people like that. Like, if, you know, my parents are college Very, educated, you're not going to marry somebody who was a driver. Hell no, exactly. like that's not happening. Like, the family's not going for it. A lot of that stems from colonialism and imperialism, that hierarchy. Um, mm -hmm. You can see it so much. It's the caste state on, on steroids in India. Right. Um, I, yeah. I've noticed that in the Philippines, um, yes. too, but definitely in London to a certain extent. It's a little bit change different. And I think they are, there's a, it's not like necessarily a backlash, but I think they're having their own, when people are trying to move outside of those really stringent hierarchies, right. they're, they're having some issues dealing with it. You know what I yeah. mean? Um, because the, the other thing, Felicia, is because those same people, once they make it to the United States, we don't care about the cat. We'll just say, oh, he's Indian. We don't, we don't care. Look, exactly. That's, that's it. And so you can see these people like thrive and go great. And they wouldn't have anywhere of an opportunity to do that in their home no. country because of their cats. But that kind of falls away. And that's why, that's the beauty of the United States, to be honest, is like the, the opportunity. I get it. Like, I didn't fully understand that whole land of opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, until when I went to Kenya and that was the first time I understood that there's no necessary, like the whole idea of compulsory education. If you can't afford school, you can't afford, go. you're not going to school. And so for us, when I came back, like it was interesting because my first, like when I came back to the United States, I was like, we are so spoiled. We are so, like, I was very like, we're horrible, right? <laughs> like, because <laughs> I'm looking at, you know, I'm like, we got all these options. You go to the grocery store. It's literally 75 types of uh, cereal and 15 types of milk and and we're just and we're still not satisfied it's still not enough you get to go to school for free um now granted some schools are better than others some people have resources better than others but this but the fact they is you still have the go, opportunity yeah you get to go and you can be and 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 as a as a country we look kindly on people who come from nothing and become something that's what we praise and that's what we laud whereas like in other countries like I said if you start low they'll, they'll use that to insult you for the rest of your life mm -hmm. whereas here it's like it's easy for you to be successful if your mama was a millionaire your daddy was a millionaire that's easy to do right show me Oprah show me the like the people who came from very humble beginnings and then got on top of the world that's an, a very American way of like that's a, it's an American kind of value, right? It's like that whole, you can, you can come from very little and we, and we respect that. We respect that generally. It's, um, yeah, because it's easy to be. But that gives you kind of like this weird complex where you think that you can bring that from America, that same idea Correct. to Ghana, to Senegal, to Nigeria, to Kenya. 
And that's not the case. You know what I mean? Correct. Right. And so, and you try to help where you can, because I do what I did find um, a lot of Americans, black or white, like they would say, let me, you know, you send your kids, your household kids to school. I did, you know, like you, you, you want to try to help in the ways that you can modestly, if of course, like everybody's not, you know, you don't have to be rich because it might not take much. It might take, cost me $150 to send this kid to school for a whole year, but he's getting a quality education and you can do that. Or, or, you know, you see people pay for, I know a number, a number of black Americans who, who were doing that. It is my great pleasure to introduce the listening audience once again to probably one of the leading foremost thought leaders on the continent today. And this is one, Kawala. She is the executive consultant and CEO of Strategies. I had her and her other two um, authors um, on my podcast a few weeks ago. Um, and we're back again discussing um, the effect of current litig- current uh, movement and the increase in conservatism um, in the United States and how it ties back to our standing and our interaction with the other uh, countries of the world. Um, and in particular, of course, Africa. Um, she is just one of those people that their spirit and graciousness just emanates um, through the screen. And I hope you enjoy um, this discussion as much as I enjoyed having it with her. Here she is again, Kawala of Strategies. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I actually have the pleasure and the honor um, to speak with probably one of the baddest women on the continent, Miss Kawala. <laughs> Um, I had the honor to speak with her and her two other authors of her book um, about, it's been about four to six weeks, you think, Ka, ago yes, that we, exactly. we first time we exactly. spoke. Yes. Yes. Uh, but yes. Would about you like to go ahead and just introduce yourself again to the listening audience? It would be great. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for having me on again, Felicia. So my name is Ka Walla. I am speaking to you from Cameroon, Douala, Cameroon, to be precise. I am a Cameroonian and African citizen. Um, I am a woman who is um, very engaged in what I consider to be the most important issue on our globe today, which is political governance. So I am engaged in um, political governance in my country, Cameroon. I'm engaged in it on our African continent and I am engaged in it globally. Um, and, uh, you know, our book that we talked about uh, last time, Black Women Shaping the World, um, helps us as activists of today to just look at what our grandmothers and our mothers did um, because Black women have been shaping the world across continents and across time for centuries. And it's very important for those of us who are trying to influence 
policies in our countries, on our continent, and in the world um, to just know that this is our place. So that's who I am. I am an African woman engaged in making the world a better place, and it's my place to do so. <laughs> and I think that's great. I mean, in order to effect change, you have to be a part of the change in the movement. Um, there, and the movement is such that there are certain people that don't want us at the table, and that's not fine because we have we deserve a place at the table because we have to direct it be from to eat just to give it a different perspective. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that you know, as Black women, um, whether it is in Africa. Um, or it is in Europe or the United States, we have been shut out of the places where decisions are made about our lives. And that is simply not okay. And, um, you know, we, we live in a world today where um, sometimes it sounds like people want us to ask for permission. Um, you know, they want to, to continue to be gatekeepers and to um, determine, you know, if they're going to let us in, how they're going to let us in, um, how many of us they're going to let in. Um, and I think we as, as Black women across the world are saying, no, <laughs> sorry, sorry, but no, we're not asking for permission. We're going to sit down at this table. Um, if you did not leave a chair for us, we're pulling up a stool. Um, if you did not leave a chair for us, we might sit on the edge of the table, but we are going to be here because it's our absolute right to be here. Um, we are one of the largest groups of people walking the face of this earth. And there is no question that in this, in this time in history, um, when we have multiple crises, complex crises, um, that our voice not be at the table. That would be bad for us, but I think what the world also can see um, uh, through these stories that we're telling over time is that it's bad for the world if, if our voices are not at the table. I think that's what uh, the racist and a lot of the bigoted people and what the conservative and there's a rise of fascism, a lot of the, they don't understand. They want everyone, they only want one voice because it's to them, it's less confusing, but it's le it would be even more confusing if the one voice is only for one group. Why you, this is, we're in a situation where there's an all hands on deck. Why would you want to shut out one of the largest group of humans or people that can actually be of help? Why would you do that? Exactly. Um, especially because we, we live in a world today, a lot of what we are experiencing today as crises um, is precisely because we, we, there was one perspective on the table, right? Um, right. You know, histor historically speaking, this one perspective on the table ended up creating sl slavery because you did not see other humans as, you know, similar to yourself. It ended up 
creating colonialism um, because you saw others as subhuman beings. Um, it ended up in the U.S. Creating, creating Jim Crow. It ended up for us here in Africa as a legacy, cre creating dictatorships and autocracies um, that we have to live under. And even more practically, um, it has ended up creating things like financial crises. We all know that part of the reason in 2008 we had a worldwide financial crisis is because all the people who are managing the world's money kind of look alike. <laughs> you know, they, they, and they, they are make... the same. Right. Oh my you God. Know? You bring up. You bring up such a great point. They all looked alike. There was so many, uh, so much potential on the the continent, and even in the more and or in the persons of color, like um, down in South America, um, but definitely in Africa, where even though it was from the motherland, the people that still ran these big multinational companies still looked like. The, the Donald Trumps uh, of the they look like white men. They were all white men. So exactly. um, and the the few that actually women that got in were like Melania. <laughs> so they were all either white women, white men. Um, and it was very funneled and there was and very little oversight. And the same, and we said we vowed that we it wouldn't happen again. And then here we are, and especially mm -hmm. in the United States. We've had mm -hmm. several huge banks that have collapsed in the last like six to eight months. Exactly. And it went back to that lack of oversight, deregulation, and there wasn't enough people until it until it almost got too late. You know what I mean? So there you go. Exactly. And I think, you know, um, Felicia, I am not, I do not think that at um, either the color of your skin or your gender or no. whatever gives gives you a particular advantage, um, you know, coming to the discussion table. But I think that especially as Black women, we have a very specific historical perspective in the sense that we have been cleaning up the messes on a Correct. human level on a human level, you know, you look at who in Africa was holding the communities together and, uh, you know, in the times of slavery and who continues till today to hold communities, communities together when there is violence, when there is war and so on, it is the women. You know, you go to the United States and you look at your horrible history of slavery, of, you know, Jim Crow, of, you know, discrimination up till today. And who is, is, is at the bottom picking up the pieces, reminding people that they are human and, and holding communities together, whether it's white communities or black communities in, in America, it is women of color. It is women of color who are taking care of the babies and taking care of the community and so on. And this is the perspective. It is that it is that historical taking care of human beings that does not allow us when we get to a decision making table to forget the human. 
movement to forget that people are the most important thing um, that you have to put at the center of that decision. And I think, you know, that's what we're bringing to the table. It is, it's, it's not, it, it, it's because of our history. It's because of what we have lived um, that we, it is in the best interest of everybody um, to open up the doors. And, and it, it's, it's outstanding for, for some of us who don't live in the United States um, to see where you all are right now. It's, it's a, very, very strange moment for us. It's strange. Yeah, I live here in the South and it's so strange to the fact where I want to tell them that you, and you said it beautifully. It's not that we think we're above because we want you to recognize our unique perspective. We don't want to take away the table and put you underneath the table because that's like a captive... That's a um the the what is it called that um uh there's a psychological advantage when you start to identify with the captives and you try and if you were uh, given the um, chance like a Stockholm syndrome Stockholm syndrome no we don't want to perpetuate that there's some disturbing individuals that would really like to but that's not our our goal we're we need to have a place at the table not to take the table away but we want to help and we have the unique perspective because with very little we have actually kept our communities together while all of this violence is being perpetrated against us where all of these things are trying to be taken away from us when there was very little if you want to have someone that knows how to multiply the sustenance like Jesus um fed the you know the multitude a black Dude, woman yes. or a woman of color know how to do that <laughs> you know? exactly 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 and 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 I really think that is you know, um, that is what we collectively bring to the table. And that, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't have Black women who are, you know, can be downright evil or not competent and so on. It, it means that when you open up so that the people from that group who, who have been left out um, have access the best of them will rise. The best of them will rise and they will rise and be coming to the conversation from that perspective. Are you a veteran or service member struggling with post-traumatic stress, anxiety, or depression? Hi, I'm John Wayne Troxel, former senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, retired. I want you to know that Emory Healthcare Veterans Program offers help and hope. Emory's free and confidential treatment is available for all eligible service members and post-9-11 veterans living anywhere in the United States. Visit emoryhealthcare.org vets. UMass Amherst is a campus of champions in our classrooms and on our fields, course, and rinks. When you step onto the campus of the number one public research university in New England, you are walking along the footsteps of graduates who have made a difference, both in our state and beyond. Awarding more undergraduate STEM degrees than any other Massachusetts university, public or private, contributes to the innovation, research, and development necessary to move the state forward. The University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. Take a look. 
It's in a book, a reading tin for I can't go anywhere. Friends to know, ways to grow, a reading tin So I'm progressing as much in Dawn, uh, Octavia Butler's book, um, the compilation, Lilith's Brew, and I'm noticing. In this next section, when they talk about the family and nursery, Lilith is has been awoken. She's gone through training to be able to wake up the next group of humans. She has a run-in with Paul Titus that basically was found when he was 14 and he has chosen to stay or resolved to stay around the Owen Collie but she noticed several things and it should have been trouble he was in they said tattered shorts his chest was out he had been found and basically isolated from other humans in his family for as many years and again 250 at that she learns in his isolation, they have collected his semen and he has fathered some 70 children. They say this is for the good of the group of humans that decide to stay among the Owen Cali and they need the, just to get the numbers up, they do these genetic modifications um, to allow them to not only stay on the trips, but they won't have the genetic mishap from when you basically have interbreeding between closely related humans. In his isolation, it looks like he becomes not just a sociopath, but a homo, uh, becomes very homicidal because in his attack, he breaks many bones and he knocks Lilith the freak out. Unfortunately, well, fortunately for her, she survives. They realize their underestimation of the homicidality of humans. And they weren't just going to get together and procreate. They have to basically prepare fully grown humans to procreate and to survive in a basically stone age world, but post-apocalyptic. This whole, uh, the whole premise of the book is how the nuclear holocaust basically devastates the world and by an alien species actually helps um, to repopulate the world in exchange for gen genetics or their genes or imprints to basically keep their own uh, population fresh. So this swap or this exchange of information is the price to pay for this genetic manipulation but it's leading to characters like Lilith that has survivor's remorse and they have to, they're saddled with the huge task of going back to a cleaned up earth and surviving, but they can't use anything that they had before because 
this alien species understands that humans, even though we're adaptable and very intelligent, we can fall, we will fall back easily about what works, even if it's negative and to our detriment. It explores not so much traditional gender roles and family structures because all of these things don't exist anymore because number one, they have to adapt to extreme circumstances and figure out those and try to come against those maladaptive behaviors to create a better future for themselves and potentially their, um, tr their progeny. Because even though they have what we would consider clones, exact copies, by exposure to different chemicals from the alien species that, and each other, they're, even though they're clones, they are going to be just as different because of how those external features actually uh, construct them into the PC people and persons they will be. And truly maladaptive things like cancer, things that they can't control, have been edited out or have been controlled by the help of the Owen Cali. I think it's thought provoking, it's powerful. This section, uh, when she is dealing with uh, who to wake up first, she's given these dossiers in a very uh, atypical and administrative manner. And she has to make the executive um, decision who she wakes up. And, one, and it's interesting now that I'm coming up on Father's Day that she wakes up a Karen. This is a girl that really is good at what she does, great at manipulation, but her family before the Holocaust were great real estate magnets. So she really never really had to do anything. And it wasn't about survival to her after before the nuclear war, but now she is left with the, all these abilities, but she needs someone that is gonna be able to lead her to get her um, and suggest that she does what is not just good or oh, good for her, but also good for the community. And it was a toss up between this Karen and then the possibly homicidal man of Chinese descent. Um, and I, f and I actually get, and, I, and I'm, I'm dealing with the reversal of gender roles, the lack of a strong father figure, because it's interesting that either you have to be, it's, it's and this is why, either there's some powerful uh, female energy, um, meaning the, not only is Lilith burdened who I suspect is African-American or black, she's burdened with the task of becoming the first mother to this new brood. And it wasn't tasked. And the only other human that was awake or had been awake was Paul Titus, who proved to be homicidal. So he had to go back into uh, suspended animation. And it, either they are like the Oloi, o Oloi, that either they're androgynous or they have strong feminine tendencies or be the first and be the strength and the leaders of these, these newly, newly human communities. I find it fascinating from that standpoint. Now, as I have mentioned that Father's Day is coming up and my father was tragically killed over a year ago. 
and not having him as a consistent and positive presence in my life, I've had to look outside and basically pick and choose those traits um, that I that were not maladaptive that allowed me to progress and seeking out those positive things in males and not really tolerating um, a whole bunch of foolishness. I would rather it sometimes be alone with my little um, dog, who is also a female and she's doing better, but she's honorary, than be with someone that will make me feel bad and will not let me be or live in my truth every day. This book in its entirety not only makes me think about my own lack of relationship with my own father, but also what is it going to take to continue to maintain relationship with extended family members and other people in the community in general and getting over being some type of weird social anxiety where I would prefer to be a hermit. But I know if I'm going to grow, I'm going to need to make human contacts and human connections. Um, that in that in itself is fear, uh, anxiety provoking, but I'm all here for it. And it's necessary to grow. My future will only look black, bright when I can make the hum those type of human connections that will continue to instill a sense of safety as well as encourage me to create. Because this is what this book, as we look at the human, the plight of humanity in a post-apocalyptic sense, it's encouraging me to make some type of mention and to change the character arc of some characters, even in my own foray into science fiction, but it also, and the present uh, makes me want to increase or improve my connection with family members that are actually in the real world. So there you go. It's a great book. The Shade Bunch, the Shade Bunch. I hope turning up for checks to pay for fake lifestyles were to be a part of the Shady Bunch. So today, <clears throat> I was actually today years old when I realized several things that the campground here at Bayshore, if you want the canal front property, you... There is no sewage hookup, so I probably midway through my uh, visit here, I'm going to have to unhook everything and go dump. Yeah, because me and Ethel, we, you know, I take showers, etc., and I wash dishes, so that kind of sucks. Um, and if you are a bougie RVer, that means... Like tonight, I was sweating like a runaway slave all day, and I'm going to have to take a shower. It's going to be quick because I don't want the gray water and the black water to fill up like crazy. But here we go. Um, I was today old when I realized that Tina Turner um, relinquished her citizenship back in 2013. This is taken directly from an article um, in USA Today. She basically said that, number one, she's not, she, there's a private, uh, she's having a private ceremony. 
she died in Switzerland. She had a stroke in 2013, colon cancer in 2016, and her husband, who she left over $100 million from her estate, gave her a transplant in 2017. When she, ooh, I wonder if Erwin Bach is related to that Bach. How dope. But, she's German, I'm just saying. But she relinquished his, her uh, citizenship because she basically said that Buddhism saved her life, but Switzerland where she felt completely whole and safe uh, there. And she's been there since the mid-90s, and why wouldn't she? We actually, I think he made a cameo in What's Love Got to Do With It. And she bounced. She's like the ultimate of black set. It's so wild that I'm ta- I talked to her in a previous part of the podcast because Blackset, she was the, her and Josephine Baker were the original Blackset. Um, and, oh, what's his name? The author, I Am Not Your Negro. They were the original Blackset. They left for a wide variety of reasons, but she's mo- the more enduring one in recent history. How do- dope. And they lived, she lived out her life at Chateau Algonquin on the the high end of Zurich. If you're going to go out, go out bougie, go out fabulous, and that's what Tina Turner did. And now I talk about the death of Pat Robertson and other pop culture news. I think it came across my Gmail and I got alerted to the fact that Pat Robertson died. I think I, that one, multiple alerts, but that's one of the alerts that wanted me to change my notification, made me rethink when I wanted to be alerted and putting all alerts on do not disturb. I know you shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but when you speak truth, is that still considered ill? Or maybe before they died, they should not have been so horrible that they thought their cleric's collar exempted them from people not wanting to drag them. So with that said, as grandmama used to say, Lord, forgive me, but this is the truth. He was not only controversial, he had some homophobic, bigoted views that put him right into the of the rightward swing of conservatism going into fascism. Tortured us for almost 700 years on the 700 Club. One of the left of the televangelists, his son and that whole network spawned even before, or maybe at the same time as Tim, Jim and Tammy Faye, but duped everybody out of their hard-earned money. And again, no, his cleric's collar did not exempt him from the anti-religion, the whole completely um, 
hate speech that he spewed daily from his televised pulpit. So he's dead. He's dead. That's all I got to say about that. And again, the clerk's collar should not exempt you from being dragged. You are held at a higher standard than most and you shouldn't hide behind it if you don't want to be dragged because if you're saying crazy stuff, just saying, just saying. series should be called Love and Hip Hop Nollywood Edition. This is a play on Love and Hip Hop Hollywood. It is wild because all of these cast members are of like either Nigerian descent or from South Africa. I think that's who where Kaylee's from. I don't get it though because they're taping in Johannesburg, we follow Kanye Mibu Diamond Platinums, who is the most stupid varmint-looking mug I've ever seen. He is the hip-hop artist, um, and he had all these baby mamas. He literally is like Young Jock, you know what I mean? Then there's um, Naked DJ, I think that's Q, who is ridiculous, and he's also... The one of the story arcs is about his making his relationship with Kaylee official. And it's just wild because 20 years ago, he couldn't even, maybe 30 years ago now, uh, because of apartheid, he couldn't even date someone like a, um, Kaylee. It was illegal. Then there's Zari, the boss lady, who <laughs> I think somebody said she actually wore. Fantana says she wore fake um, designer clothes, which is hysterical. And there is Zari, who actually, um, excuse me, Fontana, who actually was educated in the United States and has gone back um, to Ghana. She is like the less talented Meg the Stallion of that genre, musical genre. There's Swanky Jerry, who is just totally enveloped in designer clothes, some crazier than others. He swears he descended from African royalty. He is like the most stunting of Miss Lawrence from uh, Real Housewives of Atlanta. 
and delay. Or is that the one? Yes. Kanye Mibu actually is the Carly Red of South Africa or Nigeria, which is crazy. And then there's Annie Macaulay Amibia, her and she's married to Tubaba. That is the equivalent of Rashida and Kurt because it is uh, alleged that he had a baby on her. She's losing all of her endorsements, et cetera. And the story arc that involves her and Swanky Jerry, I guess I should have put up uh, spoilers because I'm basically just coming up as I'm going through the cast. She has beef. It starts out with her and Swanky Jerry, who were BFFs, um, and they fall out because she's on the phone with her management and she didn't know that Jerry was on the other line, but muted. And he, she's going off how she wants to concoct a scheme to cut Swanky Jerry out of some promo party um, because she has to get her, it looks like she has to get her bag up because she's going through a transition with her management as well as with endorsements, etc. He takes it as a stab in the heart, but they end up getting it all straightened out and talking it out and letting it go by the end of the story. And then there's Bo Nang. I don't know who she is or what her purpose was, but she tried to get an introduction into this friend group, but she ends up just basically leaving the WhatsApp chat because she said y'all were just, they were just too petty and, and too malicious. And then there is Louis Manana, who is of Namibian descent. Uh, and he is the newest. He's fine, though. He's also uh, introduced into this friend group. He seems very thirsty from uh, early on, but it wasn't towards the end when he has a conversation with Andeli and then the rest of the group, we find out what his thirst was. Evidently, about seven years ago, he was excommunicated from his church. He may have been a Jehovah's Witness. He has gotten, uh, he's been away from his family. He is interested in doing surrogacy because he wants to build his own family on his own terms. Um, and it's just wild. And then the messiness of Kanye is evident. Uh, Rosetta, Rosette, Wana, and Subatbatsu, Mothibi are and Daly's baby mamas. He plays around with getting back with either one of them. That doesn't work because he is uh, mistaking familiarity and the want to be in a relationship with love, but he just, his picker is off and they do better just co-parenting because he has like four or five kids between these two women. So this is all of the story arcs in a nutshell. Um, and as I said, it was very confusing because I was like, they all fly back and forth um, to Nigeria, but they film in swanky Johannesburg and they also went to Cape town. Um, it all only one of the things that really wanted me to, I had like questions of why, why didn't they just film in Nigeria? Is it cheaper or because the infrastructure, I don't know if it's there, uh, or it's just because of the constraints 
um, and challenges of pulling that off in Nigeria. I wonder what they are. So it just looking at their fabulous lives and people actually live this way outside of Atlanta. And it's just like, this is an even more bougie uh, rendition of Black Hollywood. This is Nollywood on steroids, and it's dope. It is so freaking dope. And it's just so unrealistic because I wonder if they're faking it to they're making it and watching stupid Diamond Platinum fly in and out on his private jet. I'm like, where are you going? Who listens to you? I'm actually going to have to download some stuff on iTunes to see if it's whacked or not. <laughs> I'm so wrong. <laughs> but it's an interesting look. Um, and as I'm getting, I roll in my eyes even more as I watch Real Housewife of Atlanta before I'm going to have to continue to watch that, but infuse it with these types of Nollywood infusions. This one, if you're looking for a bougie people, a bunch of bougie people from the continent stunting, this is it. So the young, famous and African. Yeah, it exists. And it's on Netflix streaming now. Do y'all remember on Love and Hip Hop that Benzino looked like a Oompa Loompa or like, what is her name? Said Not Your Mama from ALF. <laughs> he really did. And that old fake bogus wing he was trying to give Carly Red and how Carly Red, she really hasn't changed a whole bunch, but it's obvious she has more work. And how on that Mona Scott Young was actually the not only the executive producer, but the host of the reunion. Um, and then B, somebody else started doing it the next season, which I'm probably gonna skip ahead because the wigs, and the glam was bleak or uh, real cheesy these early years because nobody was balling like that, not even Stevie J, because he, I think he was having some cash flow issues was probably one of the things that allowed him to, or made him get on this show. Um, and I'm watching just how crazy Mama D was and how broke Scrappy was and just how ratchet the music was, but I loved it. Even Rashida and her blue eyeshadow and under eye bags was a bit, you know, challenging, but you could tell when the money started getting right because everybody's fashion sense actually improved ridiculously. I was today years old when I realized that two of the main stars previously Carly Red and then later added to the series Love and Hip Hop Atlanta Shekinah a long term I think she was like a stylist and hairstylist to the rap people or to hip hop in Atlanta at the time what I found is how how much they hated each other. I'm gonna to have to ask why did Shekinah leave the taping of Run It Back? And her name is, whole name is Shekinah Joe. 
she's had a couple of run-ins, it looks like. Um, and Lyrica was actually on the show. They were on, like, VH1's Family Reunion. They had a misunderstanding, and then they basically started brawling online, I guess. But I want to find out why she gets up and walks out, and nobody's really um, talking about it yet. But I, I will find out. I guess people will start talking about it, but I find it interesting that Erica and Shay are are talking about the show. All of the queens <laughs> from Hollywood, Miami, New York are all uh, reviewing the reunion special and is watching Scrappy, who looks so young, but still hard. He has some issues. How and how now Shay and Erica and Mama D, who couldn't stand Erica, who now is seems like she's more successful than Scrappy. And then Shay, they're sitting side by side. And they're and Mama D's recognizing her son ain't shit. And how he wants shit to both Erica and Shay. How different these women are. And 10 years later, how much they're changed. And it was confirmed from Shay's own mouth that she was the one that really, from a financial standpoint and from a connection standpoint, she got Scrappy, Lil Scrappy, now just Scrappy, on Love and Hip Hop. She put him on and he did her way dirty. So, wow. Tragic. is kind of sick and tired of Real Housewives of Atlanta. Raise your hands. I want to see them. I'm tired. I'm tired of old contrived storylines. Uh, I don't know if the producers that made Potomac and Atlanta good are no longer there. If you listen to Carlos King, yeah, they all fucking gone. I wonder what is the work environment that that level of goodness is basically all consuming and nobody can survive it takes I think it does take you basically give a part of yourself a part of your personality and when you this far in there's so much that you could do with the episode number one Marlo's storyline or story arc and at the sixth episode is old. It literally is old. Back in 2020, while the, heart, the peak, the beginning of the Panorama Pro-V, her nephew was murdered by his roommate. I don't know. I definitely knew that the nephew or cousin, that the relative of Marlo Hampton worked at Old Lady Game at some point. He actually was, had, they had pictures of him in his, in his whites. There was pictures, a couple of snaps of him with candy. But 
that didn't mean Candy knew who the hell he was. Because she hadn't checked. I remember an episode not too long after they had expanded for the like the ninth time that um, the general manager basically said, y'all are funny like that. They don't really let a whole bunch of people in. And there are hundreds of people between Old Lady Gang and then Blaze that y'all don't even know. Yes, that's how a big successful corporation works. There are so many layers of separation between the worker bees and the owners. And in this case, Kenny Burris and Todd Tucker. So even, and then they replayed that conversation not too long after the relative had been killed and she was calling her candy yams. They kikied. There's three years between that conversation and where we are now. And now she's still on this hate-fueled, get back at Candy, tear her down, because I don't know how to act thing. Don't get me wrong. Marlo's grief is Marlo's grief. How she chooses to deal with it or not to deal with it is on her. It is not on that attention-grabbing, Courtney bitch it is not on Sheree just trying to come at Candy because she was put on pause for like seven years Candy has nothing to do with that it has now I don't know if Candy should have just basically offered or given her flowers I mean she did as much when Kenya's dog died and and her and Marlo were cooler I think it would have been great that she did, but Marlo seemed to be okay. It's like she went on a multiple-year campaign to get on the show. The thirst trap was real. So now you bringing this shit up three years later, and y'all are not living the truth. Nobody cares. And in the words of NeNe Leaks, this, stop it. This is stupid. It is such a stupid and contrived storyline, and we really don't care. We are not trying to diminish the grief of Marlo Hampton. Don't get me wrong. But what we're not going to do is y'all are not going to fucking pay in our face about some three-year storyline that means nothing. If Marlo had just said, this episode with your actual relative Quentin actually triggered me and I didn't, I haven't, didn't deal with my grief then, instead of trying to spin it and saying that making up shit so you can get airtime that's what you're not going to do you're not going to play in the face of this woman whose actual relative actually was injured and could have been killed you were acting like you were all right then why are you bringing up this crap now y'all are reaching when you should just like oh my god that's why i had to put them on pause i stopped watching uh the shady bitches the Green Eye Bandits. That's why I stopped watching that. And that's why I'm, I will give Potomac a couple episodes before the whole season and I just watch the reunion. Because that's where I'm starting to get with Real Housewives of Atlanta. What you're not going to do is you're not going to play in my face. You're not going to try to drum up some story arc for Marlo because y'all ain't got shit going on. 
y'all took all that time to negotiate the contract with Drew, but we are not seeing anything on the level of scam Duvall and re-editing in and putting that in. Why aren't y'all talking about that? Why aren't y'all talking about, oh, there was another story on. I would even, I would, I got kind of excited with Kenya Moore uh, hair spa, but she's dating the kale guy. Are we going to hear, is it going to be another Mark Daly where she basically talks through an imaginary, it wasn't imaginary, a wedding. They She has a hush-hush wedding, pops up with the kid, and then they have a pop-up divorce. We see him twice. So I'm confused. I'm just literally confused. Why are y'all doing this contrived storyline when there are such realistic story arcs that would make sense and are more compelling than this BS, this three-year-old BS for Margo, Marlo? I get it. It's sad, but why didn't y'all say some crap then? What? It's just so old now. What should coulda, woulda, candy shoulda done? then means nothing now because it's mute he didn't work for her her if you just basically if the realistic thing was how you're dealing with your truth how you're dealing with this grief that's what you should have worked on but y'all trying to drum up some beef with candy to get her to pop off because y'all have nothing interesting else to work to talk about that's some bs and furthermore that case at the time of filming was probably an open investigation. They couldn't talk about that shit. They weren't protecting Candy. They were protecting, the DA was probably protecting that case. They couldn't talk about that shit. So whatever, what you should have been realistic, y'all should have been recutting and re-editing, getting the other OGs in, then Sheree's boring ass. Because now that Martell is not in the picture, that was only her interesting storyline. Her grandbaby is cute, but that's not enough to keep her on the screen because if she goes off one more time on what Candy didn't do or not do for them and their broke asses, I don't know what to say. I'm going to need to know what's going, probably what's going on with um, Candy's daughter or um, Todd's daughter. Are they going to get Todd's movie made? Um, those are some realistic storylines that I would find interesting. And what the F is going on with Drew and them? Drew Sidora is the most annoying character on this show. She really is. And with that said, it made me annoyed that when she, even she sounds, she was right. Her Changing the words to incident, you know, nobody in Chicago talk like that. She dumb. But at the same time, what she said is Candace is not responsible for Marlo's grief. There is no time limit on when she can come out of it. Three years out is still pretty fresh in her memory, but she can't blame Crandy for basically pumping her up and doing what she needs to do. The same shit that would basically, this actually happened after she threw them out when she threw her um her other uh her nephews out and she got mad with that because they weren't cleaning up their room she didn't know how to act she didn't really realize that she was going to have them for years instead of just a short period of time when her sister got locked up 
she still has those boys. She made them go stay with her sister in a two, three bedroom apartment in a bunk bed. And now they're back. They're acting. So how are they acting now? Or are they still wilding out every now and again? But now she knows better how to deal with it. Or she's still spazzing out. She threw them all off. She did a nene leaks when everybody wasn't catering to her like she should they she wanted them to when Greg was ill that's the same shit that Marlo is doing in her grief she's making everybody responsible for her trauma and she makes me even more angry because I agree with Drusador of all people but I want to see the mess that is Drusador's life who is you could tell she does all that therapy speak but at the same time, her life is falling apart, girl. Bye. I ain't got anybody got time for that. But I'm excited about some story arcs. Kenya Moore's hair spa. And what's going on with Riley? Don Juan is who I couldn't remember his name. Um, as far as a general manager. It stops there because he runs all of them. I bet Todd and Candy barely know even the general manager at that time. If he hadn't got fired or he didn't leave and is running until her nephew that she helped raise got shot. But this, again, a contrived storyline will make a true Real Housewives stand stop watching. And we're going to watch other stuff like Bling Empire and Young fabulous and African. We'll watch everything else besides the BS that is becoming your franchise and we would hope it'll limp along until the reunion and we may watch some other stuff, but y'all are going to need to stop playing in our faces because again, contrived storylines letting these least bit players be the producers of your show is going to get your show canceled because of the BS. You producers, you need to know better and do better because you were trained better by the best, Carlos King. Just saying. And that's it for this episode of Ten Fro is Reading. You know, I talked cash-ish all last year. I hope the listening audience will continue to enjoy my opinion and not so subtle shade. I mean, I'm 2000 listeners per episode in, so go run tell that haters. I may take it on the road if I get hint hint sponsorship. Navigate to dalesangelsinc.blog for swag and extended podcast notes. Don't forget to hit like or leave a five-star review. It gets me on top of the algorithms and it may just get you on my show. 2023's motto is boss up and get the bag. And as always, tell a friend and thank you for listening. We're building care right in your neighborhood because Chewis is the bank built on care. And now we're here. And we've put the finishing touches on a new location near you. So drop by and say hi. Whether you're looking for home financing, business support, or a checking account, you're covered here. Because when you start with care, you get a different kind of bank. 
Visit truest.com slash locations to find your local branch. See you soon. Member FDIC. The best data warehouse isn't a warehouse at all. It's a data lake house. Because everything you can do with a data warehouse, you can do better with a data lake house. How about SQL analytics with 12 times better price performance than a data warehouse? Streaming data and ETL? Those come standard. Machine learning? Yes. Governance, data sharing, predictive analytics, they all work better on Lakehouse. See everything Lakehouse can do for you. Visit Databricks.com today.